Hey, everybody, welcome back to Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network, where we take a closer look each week at the wide, weird, and wonderful world of running. I'm your host, Jonathan Ellsworth. I'm also the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Today on Off the Couch, we're going to be doing things a little bit differently. Our guest today is Ryan Van Duzer, who has basically been running his entire life and who has a YouTube series called Running with Ryan, which you all should definitely check out. And last fall, as my Off the Couch co-host Brendan Leonard was nearing his goal of running 52 marathons in 52 weeks, Ryan had Brendan on as a guest on Running with Ryan, and you should definitely check out that episode. So we thought it would be a good idea to turn the tables here and give Brendan now a chance to interview Ryan, and that is what is taking place today, and I assure you, this conversation does not disappoint. Brendan talks to Ryan about catching and raising snakes, about his ride across the country on a cruiser bike, and how Ryan started up his YouTube channel and his Running With Ryan series. They also talk about Ryan's typical training program, which Ryan sums up as being chronically undertrained. They talk about the Burning Man Ultra Marathon. Yes, that is a thing, and you definitely want to hear about it. And they touch on some of the other amazing places that running has taken Ryan. This is definitely a fun one, and so here it is, Brendan Leonard's conversation with Ryan Van Duzer. Ryan, thanks for coming on uh, Off the Couch. It's going to be great to talk to you about uh, your jogging career. Oh, I love jogging. It's my favorite. <laughs> um, so we could, we could start in a number, number of places. Let's start with what you just did most recently, and then we'll kind of we'll, we'll go back to the beginning, if, if that works. What, what have you been up to lately as far as running? I just got back from the Copper Canyons of northern Mexico, the mysterious place where the Tarumada Indians live and run. And I did the Caballo Blanco Ultra for the fourth time in the last five years. And it was, as always, a magical experience. Is that that your fourth time overall? Well, it's my fourth time being there. My first time there in 2015 was the year the race was actually canceled due to narco violence and murders in the area. So I went all the way down there the first time expecting to run my first 50 miler and was unable to do that because it was called off. Wow. So was it, so then when you did go get back to run it, was it still your first 50 miler? It was. Yeah. So that was 2015. I didn't get back there to 2017 and that was my first 50 miler. And it was at the time monumental. I, I never thought I'd be able to run 50 miles, even though I've been a runner all my life, 50 miles just sounded insane. Yeah. So and you, did you hear about it through reading Born to Run? Is that how it happened? Yep. I read the book. I got all excited and inspired and uh, I decided to go down there. I wanted to see it for myself. I already knew that, you know, I love Mexico. I'd lived in Mexico in college and I wanted the adventure of it. You know, that story does a great job of explaining just how beautiful the canyons are and mysterious. And I wanted to see it firsthand. Man. And you didn't think, hey, I read Born to Run. I could do a race that's 
closer to my hometown of Boulder, Colorado, you were like, I think I'm going to do this, this odyssey. Well, I mean, I grew up in, I grew up in Boulder and I I've done the Boulder Boulder plenty of times. I wanted to do a new race. So uh, I wanted to challenge myself. I wanted to see if I could go down there and do it. I wanted to meet these, these people down there. And, uh, I actually took buses all the way from my front door in Boulder to Eureka, Mexico, where the race starts and finishes. <laughs> Man, that's in, you know, uh, Joe Grant, we talked to last week. He, he took buses all the way down. Oh, he from, did? I think Portland when oh, he, wow. the first year he did it. And, uh, yeah, that's that's like a completely different ultra marathon. I feel like that was harder than the actual running, sitting <laughs> yeah. in a bus all day and all night and trying to sleep and uh, being, you know, awoken by guys with machine guns and all that sorts of fun stuff that happens in Mexico. And how big is the race? How big is the race now? The, the race is pretty big. I would say it's a, about eight to nine hundred people, and I would say. 500 of them are the local Tarumara Indians. And then there's, a, you know, about 150 to 200-ish Mexican nationals from all over Mexico. And then there's usually a group of uh, gringos from the United States and around the world and Japan and Czech Republic. So it's gotten pretty big. And the coolest part about the race is there's a kids race now. And so the kids race happens the day before, and there's about a thousand kids who run, and they have prizes and medals, and it's just a, a big celebration of of running, and that's exactly what Caballo Blanco, Micah True, wanted it to be was a celebration of culture. Huh. And how many, how far are the kids running? The kids are not, well, it depends on your age. I mean, they have like teeny, teeny little cute kids that run down the street, and then they have 15, 16 year olds that run, I think, a 5K. Okay. And they're, they're less cute, is what you're saying. They are not cute at all, but they do, <laughs> you know, they run in their jelly sandals or bare feet or dresses and jeans. I mean, it's, it's not your typical American race where everybody's geared up with fluorescent yellow spandex and uh, the latest and greatest $100 shoes. Huh. Are you seeing, since you've been back several times, are you seeing sort of, are you one of the regulars? Are you seeing the same people come back? Yeah. Okay. For sure. I think a lot of the same people, if you go there, you kind of fall in love with the place because it is so special. And the town is only 1,200 people, so it's really small. So I know a lot of the locals now. When I went back there uh, last week, it, it felt like I was going to my second home. I was hanging out with all my my buddies. I actually brought my mom there this time so she could experience what I had been doing down there. And she loved it. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a beautiful place for sure. Did your mom pace you at all or did she just show <laughs> up at like, what was, the, what was her role? Her role, she was doing the guacamole and michelada marathon. <laughs> while I was running. <laughs> so, no, she just wanted to go down there and, and you know, see it. You know, I had been going to this place and telling her about it. And she's like, you know, I'd like to experience that. And so I was really proud of her because I know that she was scared for me the first time I went because, of she, you know, she's heard all the stories. And even in the book, it talks about what a dangerous place it is. But uh, it was fun for her to experience the beauty and the friendliness of the locals. Yeah. You, you and I have talked about before that you have this sort of, uh, your your MO is to do an adventure or something a few times and then you take your mom and that's like, yeah. that's like your model and bring her along. What are, the, what are some of the other things that you've done that with? <laughs> 
Yeah, uh, another uh, fun and strange one. I took my mom to Burning Man. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Which is a, a funny place to bring a mom. But uh, she, again, she she loved it. She got to see why Burning Man is such a special place to me. And she got to meet all my friends and, you know, check out all the artwork and see all the, the naked men, which was exciting for her. So <laughs> mom really loved Burning Man. I've taken her to Ragbri in Iowa, this 20,000 person bike ride across the state of Iowa for seven days. And she is not a cyclist at all. So we got her an electric bike and she was cruising with everybody in the pack and had a great time eating pie. And uh, I'm trying to think where else I brought her. Oh, this past December, I brought her on a, this is more her style. I brought her on a cruise of the Danube to check out Christmas markets in Germany. Has she, has she done the Havelina? Has she come and watched you do the Havelina 100? Yeah, you know about more about this than I do. Yes, she came to the Havelina 100 as well. And that, that's kind of like a Burning Man type experience. It's uh, colorful and loud and it's an all night affair. And that was really fun as well. So you, you know, now that we're on your, like talking about your mom, maybe we should just start at your beginning of your story of running. Like, do you remember, what, do you remember, do you have a first running memory that's, that's uh, sort of formative? No, yeah. Well, growing up in Boulder, Colorado, a very run-friendly town, um, there's there's a lot of running going on here. And at my school, Columbine Elementary, we have what's called the Mile Marathon that happens every May. And we train in gym class and we run this one-mile race. And the coolest thing about it is that a lot of the elite runners would come to the race and talk to the kids and get us all inspired. So I'm talking like Frank Shorter and Rosa Moda and Priscilla Welsh, a lot of the, the, the old the old guard, and it got me excited about running. And that's essentially how I started doing it, was running this one-mile race, and uh, that's it. And then I started doing the Boulder Boulder at a young age when I was in first grade, so that's, what, six years old or something? Oh, wow. I've, I've done now the Boulder Boulder every year except for two when I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Honduras. I said Boulder Boulder is 10K and you're doing it at six six years old? Yeah, exactly. Yep. Oh my God, that must have felt so long at the age of six. It did. And I remember my mom being kind of nervous. Like she's like just letting me go out in this mass of thousands of people. She's like, when you get to the stadium, Folsom Field at the end, go to this one section and I will find you. And she was terrified that I was not going to figure it all out. And I was just having the time of my life. I was, you know, running with all these big adults and uh, having a great time. And there were these aid stations with like free Gatorade or whatever they had at the time. So for me, it was exciting. I was like, wow, look at all this, this fruit juice and it's for free. And, uh, you know, I just at a young age really enjoyed running. And I was good at it at a young age, too, which is always motivating. When you won the Boulder Boulder at the age of six overall. <laughs> exactly. The overall. Yeah, I knew, I knew I was going straight to the Olympics after that. Looking backwards, do you see anything that led to you becoming adventurous or adventurous through these athletic pursuits? Because you've, you've bicycled across America four, four times, right? Yeah. Four yeah, times. like, do you see anything in... Uh, whether it's your home life or um, in school or anything like that, that kind of lit that fire for you at all, like the spark? Or is that not is it not that simple? Yeah, I don't know what lit the spark. I've always just loved exploring. 
And so I started running at a young age and that could get me around like, you know, three or four miles, but that wasn't quite far enough. I wanted to see more. And, uh, I got a bicycle at a young age. I actually won a bicycle in a running race here in Boulder. And it was a cherry red Diamondback Sorrento mountain bike. And I think at that time I was 11 or 12 years old. And that bike opened up my world completely. Now I could travel further than three or four miles and uh, really explored Boulder and all the little trails around town. And I loved being alone for some reason and just being out there and uh, breathing the fresh air and moving my my body. And I remember riding all the way to the Boulder Reservoir once, which is pretty far from my house at the time, and being like, this is the coolest thing in the world. <laughs> like I could go anywhere on this bike. And from that point on, I've, you know, I've been running and biking adventures all over the world. Did any of this ever strike you as a lot of effort? You know, as a young kid, you're just kind of like, oh, man, that's that's far. Or were you just kind of energetic naturally? And Yeah, I was I've always been energetic naturally. That's a good way to put it. And the more I moved, the more charged up I got. You know, of course, I would get tired at times, but I, I really just. I just kept going and going and going and and loved the feeling of how far I could take myself, even at a young age where most of my friends were at home playing video games and sleeping in on Sunday mornings. I would wake up early and go running or, or biking. And at the time, my mom was a little terrified of it because she's letting her young boy out on his bicycle. And she doesn't know where I'm going, really. She has no idea when I'm going to be back. You know, I could have been out doing doing bad stuff, but I was just riding my bike and you know, I've always loved nature and I would go out to the reservoir area where it's kind of, you know, flat and I would catch snakes. <laughs> it's a funny thing, but I loved catching snakes and I would bring them home and I had a whole collection of garter snakes and bull snakes. <laughs> so you, you knew the, are there rattlesnakes out there? Yeah, there are rattlesnakes out there. I certainly, I knew the difference. I was like a reptile freak when I was a kid. I loved anything creepy and crawly. God, that's, that is terrifying. <laughs> So what happened to all these snakes? Well, this, the snakes, well, I had them for years in my house. And one time, one of my bull snakes got out. And I lived in the basement at my house. And it was gone for six months. I thought it was gone. Like, it got out of the house. But I, I found it six months later in the laundry room and uh, put it back in the cage. And I was like, come on, buddy. So I have lots of fun stories. My mom didn't really love my snake hobby, but she, she allowed it. She was a good mom supporting her little boy. I wouldn't either. That's, <laughs> I mean, especially if it's in the house for like six months, right? Like, and yeah, I, I, you're definitely sure it's the same snake. Oh, for sure, hundred percent. Yeah, huh. I had a. I was on a raft trip with a lady. She had her daughter was I think 19 and had a year or two earlier gotten I think a python. I think that's right as a pet, and uh, had moved out and. Uh, I, I don't know how far away she lived, but moved in with a boyfriend, left, and was like, I can't take the snake. And so her mom was feeding the snake, and you have to feed him. I, I wasn't in on the conversation. She was talking to somebody else, and the person said, you know, what do you feed him? And she said, oh, mice. And she goes, oh, well, how does that work? And she said, well, you just you buy a bunch of them, keep them in the freezer, and then you set one out on the counter to thaw, and then you throw it in the... <laughs> and I just, it just sounded like, oh, okay, I, no, I don't think so, you know? And, yeah, that's and then, happening. And she said something like, oh, yeah, they typically live to be 18 years. I, I don't know if that's true or not, but, like, 
okay, you know, if you, you know, when you leave home and you leave this pet that is going to live another 16, 17 years and you, your mom has to feed up mice every day, like I'm having a talk with my kid at that point. I'm like, <laughs> you got to find a way to make this work. I don't know about your new apartment, but just you're taking this thing. It's a giant yeah, snake. Yeah. That's an awesome story. I have a very similar one where I went after high school. I lived in Sweden for a year. And I, I had two iguanas and I had them all in my high school. And I left these two iguanas with my mom and she had to deal with them for a year while I was in Sweden and came back and got them. <laughs> oh, man. She's she's very supportive. I'm, yeah, she's mom of the century. So you're running the Boulder Boulder from age six to so this will be you're going to be 40. You're 41. 41, yeah. So you'll be doing your 30, 33rd Boulder Boulder this 30 year? 30-something, yeah. Wow, okay. And I love it. The Boulder Boulder, to me, is my favorite day of the year in Boulder. I mean, I love big events. I love community coming together. I love goofy costumes. I love everything about not just the Boulder Boulder, but running in general, the community behind it. And Boulder just lights up during this race. And now I've gotten involved with the Boulder Boulder. I've I've done broadcasting for them for the past few years, and uh, it's a lot of fun. I really enjoy it. And I love running fast, too. I do train for it and try to go as fast as I can. Okay. What's, what is, do you want to share your time? My fastest time is 36 minutes in one second. Oh, that is fast, man. Yeah. Yeah. Last year, I ran 37.30, I think. So... I'm doing all right. Actually, you know, I'm getting older, but my times are kind of maintaining. So I'm moving up in the leaderboard. Everybody else is getting slower. <laughs> yeah. Once once you get to the like the high end of that age group, like you may you may be able to, to podium for your for your age group, huh? I have not won the Boulder Boulder since I was a kid, but I'm getting closer. So we'll see. Yeah. And by one, I mean one my age group. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So you're you're doing the Boulder Boulder. You go to you go to CU, correct? Yeah. University of Colorado. Is there anything between that and when you discover ultra marathons? I think you did the New York City Marathon at some point, right? Yeah. So ultras is is a pretty new thing to me. I mean, I was a runner all my life and did five Ks and ten Ks and ran in high school, cross country, all that fun stuff. And then in college I ran, but I, you know, I did the Boulder Boulder once a year, but I didn't really take it all that seriously. And, um, I think I ran, well, actually, no, I ran my first marathon at age 18. I was uh, studying abroad in Sweden and my Swedish host brother was way into running and he signed up for the Copenhagen marathon. And this is back in 1997. And I was like, I can probably do a marathon. That's only four Boulder Boulders. No problem. <laughs> I equate every all distances in Boulder Boulders, 10Ks. <laughs> and um, so I did the Copenhagen Marathon, and it was really hard. I completely bonked. I It was miserable. And I remember thinking after that race, I am never running again. I It sucked so bad. <laughs> did, you, did you train for it at all? I trained... I trained a bit, you know, I started up in my mileage, but probably not as much as I should have, you know, I definitely didn't do like a 20 miler, you know, a month before or whatever they tell you to do. Um, I just kind of off the couched it and, uh, didn't go so well. Okay. Yeah. I feel like that's a bad, uh, well, I mean, it can work for some people. Maybe just not, maybe just <laughs> yeah. not me and you, but. Yep. And I, I didn't run my next marathon for 10 years. And that was the New York City Marathon. 
in 2009. So, um, yeah, it, it, that, that one bad experience in Copenhagen really zapped me for a while. I, I kept running, but just not long distances. I, I did the same thing after I did a marathon. I was like, it's time for, you know, I should probably take a good nine, nine year break here before I try this <laughs> yeah. again. That's good. Yep. So what led you back to New York city marathon? I, I think I had always been attracted to doing something like that in New York city. New York city is just a beautiful place to be anyway. And my friend's dad, I don't want to name drop or anything. My friend's dad is Frank shorter and he got us into the race. So I ran with my good buddy, Alex, who I ran in high school with. And he's, he's been like my main running buddy all my life. And we, we did the, the New York city marathon. And again, I, went out too fast and kind of blew myself up. And I was crawling through Central Park at the end. And I was like, this marathon stuff sucks. Like literally crawling or were you just actually walking? And I was walking. Okay. I was like in a lot of pain. A Alex, my buddy, had gone ahead. And I was like, just go, man, go. <laughs> Leave me. Save yourself. Yeah. Exactly. It was okay. one of those moments. I had just ridden my bicycle across the country. In 2009, so my body was in shape, but not running shape. For first time going across the country? Or yeah, no? first time going across the country. And I rode a cruiser bike across the country that year. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's uh, So you got a new Belgium cruiser bike and rode it yep. from, did you go Oregon to New York? Or no, I went from Oceanside, California to Washington, D.C. Okay. Yeah, that's also a bad marathon training plan. Yeah, it's horrible. Like, you think, oh, I'll stay in shape riding my bike 100 miles a day. It does you no good for running at all. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously. Yeah. So we need, we have, there's a number of threads I sort of need to bring together. So your biggest following now is on, is on YouTube, I, th I believe. Yeah, by far. Where you do, um, gosh, you've just been sort of doing, like, I would say, almost travel journalism for a really long time. Even if it's local, even if it's local stuff, you're sort of taking people through an experience you're having, whether it's uh, something in Boulder or uh, Ragbri across Iowa, or your most recent like Baja divide um, uh, bike, bike packing trip. Where does that um, idea of doing things in front of the camera and that sort of journalism, where does that start for you? That started in college, essentially. I got a degree in broadcast journalism, and that teaches you how to be like a local news anchor. I did an internship at Nine News in Denver, which sounds exciting, but I hated it. Local news to me was just boring and depressing, and they focused on just negative stuff. And that's just kind of what the news does, you know? And I was like, I don't want to do I want to do the opposite of this. I want to make happy news. I want to make insp inspirational news. And then um, I started traveling a bit and deciding, hey, it'd be cool to like share stories about my travels. And so my very first like video I ever made that went anywhere is I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Honduras for two years. And then when I finished my service, instead of flying home, I cashed in my ticket, got like $500. I had a friend bring down a Trek 8,000 mountain bike and I rode my bike home from Honduras and I filmed the whole thing and that short video played on the travel channel. Oh, and this is right. And this is right when online video was sparking up on YouTube in 2005. And that opened up a whole new world because before YouTube, the only way to like have a story 
a video story would was to be on TV and it's really hard to get anything broadcast on TV, but now I could have my own channel. And so YouTube came out. I started doing stories for the local newspaper here in Boulder on the daily camera and I filmed local adventures and I start also at the same time started a local public access TV show called out there. And the whole idea was to get people off the couch and get out there. And uh, so that's kind of how it all started. And I started just running around with my little Sony Handycam, sometimes forcing my little brother to help film me. And we'd go on adventures, and I would either put them on public access and then shortly after on YouTube. And ever since that point, I've been a, yeah, a travel journalist, visual storyteller kind of guy. Yeah, I think the first time I ever saw your name anywhere, I was like, this is before I'd ever climbed the third flat iron and I was like <laughs> what is that like and somehow a search led me to your yeah. YouTube channel and god that must have been a very long time ago oh that was that was 2005 2006 that's right when it all started okay so what are you at this time you are not walking around with a $5,000 camera I assume were you what were you what did you use like what what did you have at that time this is before like digital I had a a Sony Handycam. It was like the size of my palm and it took those little DV tapes. And that was my adventure camera. There were no GoPros back then or anything like that. So I had this a small camera and just ran around and, and filmed everything I could. Do you remember what it actually cost you to, to buy that at the time? Oh yeah, that was an $800 camera. It was the Sony DCR PC9. I'll never forget it. <laughs> wow. So... <laughs> So did you, when you take off from Honduras, did you have like a, any sort of tripod or were you just like turning the camera back on yourself and doing selfie footage or? Yep. I did have a little tripod. So I did the whole thing where I, you know, set the tripod up, hit record, run back, get on my bike and ride in front of the tripod, doing that over and over and over and over, making it look like I have a camera crew. And then a lot of like the selfie style stuff, which is, you know, before this is way before like vlogging or YouTubing was even a thing. Um, yeah, just turning the camera on myself while I'm riding one handed, holding on the handlebar with my left hand and filming with my right hand and just, you know, talking to the camera about what's going on. And how did, how did you get this? How does it go from your camera to ending up on the travel channel? What was the process there? Yeah. So I got home from the bike ride and I bought an iMac with some of my Peace Corps money. When you do the Peace Corps, you get a readjustment allowance of $6,000 for two years of work. So I used 1500 of that and I bought my first iMac and I got Final Cut Pro and I put together like a little five minute video of the experience. And at the time, Travel Channel had a show called What's Your Trip? And it was essentially a compilation of people's vacation footage. And so I, I submitted it to them and they said, this is pretty cool. We're going to play two minutes of it. And that got me hooked. That got me thinking, wow, I could actually make a living being a storyteller and traveling the world and education, educating people about different cultures and peoples and foods and all that fun stuff that happens on the travel channel. So I, I got my little thing on the travel channel from that moment on, I wanted to be a TV host on the travel channel. So all of my effort went into becoming a travel channel TV host. It didn't really work out to make a long story short. I did appear on the travel channel many times. I was on the discovery channel. I shot pilots for all sorts of other channels. My main goal again was to be a host. It just didn't work out. And so about 10 years after my 
first thing aired on the Travel Channel is when I started taking YouTube seriously. And I'm like, well, maybe this Travel Channel thing just isn't going to work. And I want more control over my content and my storytelling. So I'm going to build up a YouTube channel and be like Casey Neistat. And that's that's what happened about three years ago. Where I put all of my effort into YouTube, kind of took the brakes off of, you know, going to castings in New York and L.A. and trying to be a host. And it's the best decision I ever made. I love YouTube. I love the freedom of it. I love being able to tell a story that shares my heart and my soul. You know, on the Travel Channel, it was cool. You know, I, yeah, I'm on national TV, but a lot of times I'm reading somebody else's script or somebody else's storyline. So it's not really me. Anybody could have been doing what I was doing as long as they're good at memorizing words. YouTube, on the other hand, that is me. That is my heart and soul. You go on my channel, you'll find videos about me uh, talking about why I quit drinking alcohol to the, the pains of heartbreak to the joys of running a 100-mile race. So it's a little bit of everything. And I've created a community on my channel and I interact with everybody. I respond to almost every single comment and question I get. And that's the beauty of YouTube. Yeah. And did um, some of that stuff like doing pilots and stuff like that, does that, did that pay off for you when you were decided to just create your own thing on YouTube? Kind of, you know, it's TV is so different and it's so faked, <laughs> You know, and it would take forever to like film a sequence of just walking up and meeting somebody like, hey, I'm Ryan. How you doing? Tell me about your mezcal factory. And we would shoot that 15 times so that camera guys could get all the different angles. And by the 15th time, the person on the other end who's not in TV is like, what the hell is going on? Why do I have to shake this guy's hand 15 times and say hello? And I think it just it kills the momentum. It kills the spirit. And so now with YouTube, like. Whatever happens, happens. Like, I don't reshoot anything. Like, if I'm meeting somebody for the first time or there's some spontaneous moment, whatever is happening in that moment is what I capture on camera, and I'm not going to, like, fake it and shoot it again. So I think I actually learned what not to do uh, working in the world of TV. And now with YouTube, it's just, you know, it's I try to keep it as real and genuine as possible. Whenever I'm telling a story or an encounter or recapping a, an experience. Yeah. So this will, I'm going to bring this back to running because you have a series you call running with Ryan, um, which is hard to imagine pitching to a TV channel where you're like, Hey, I'll go out and I'm going to run with people and interview them. Um, which probably only really makes sense to people who live in Boulder uh, or, you know, or, or people like us who maybe people who listen to this podcast, like, oh yeah, you could pull that off. You know, most people are like running, oh, you could never talk. And so looks like your 13th most viewed video on YouTube is, uh, an interview with Courtney DeWalter, uh, during your running with Ryan series. Can you, can you talk about how you decided that this would be a good idea and something you would do as part of your YouTube channel? Yes. So I actually ripped off this idea from Kevin Nealon. Kevin Nealon has a YouTube channel called Hiking with Kevin. Kevin is the comedian from Saturday Night Live and a lot of other things. And he goes hiking with comedians and it's really natural off the cuff. There's barely any editing. And I love the style of it. And I was like, you know what? This would be a great format for running. Because as we all know, as runners, we have some of our best conversations on the trail with our friends just chit-chatting about whatever. 
And uh, that's how it started. And so my very first episode, I was lucky enough to have Scott and Jenny Jerk on the show. And from there, I've been able to interview a lot of big names in the running world, even Brendan Leonard. <laughs> a lot of, oh, and small names, you mean. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it is, it's been a lot of fun. And it's, it's kind of like a podcast where it's very lightly edited. It's very different than any of my other videos. They're much longer than my other videos. And I just go running with people and we chat about life and overcoming obstacles or, you know, with Courtney, we talked about a lot of funny stuff. Like she has a horrible diet and eats tons of ice cream and candy. And we talked about all that stuff. And um, she's such a big name right now. I think that's why the video did really well. And, you know, I've gotten to interview Dave Mackey, the the ultra runner in Boulder, who, you know, had a almost near death experience and had to have his leg amputated. And Hillary Allen, who's another one, a sky runner that had a horrible accident in Norway and came back from, from you know, falling off a hundred foot cliff. And so some of the stories are really inspirational um, about just overcoming the odds. Yeah. And also normal people as well who are not. Yeah, that's true. Normal not, people. Exactly. Not winning UTMB and not, not almost dying. So that's nice. Um, how are you coming up with guests for that? Are you just kind of like popping around and going, oh, you know who would be fun? This person. Or what is was that like? Yeah. So luckily, you know, in Boulder, there's lots of big name runners with interesting stories. So that's essentially how I get guests. And I've lived here all my life. So I know a lot of these people. And if I don't know them personally, I have a connection to them. I just reach out to these people like Courtney DeWalter. I'd never met her. I sent her a direct message on Instagram telling her what I what I wanted to do. And she's like, yeah, sweet. Meet me at this trail. And we went and did it. That sounds very on brand for her, I think. And she's so friendly. We were running and she says hi to every single person on the trail who ran past us. She is definitely one of my favorite people in the ultra running world. So yeah, I get guests essentially just by reaching out to them. Yeah. And, and what would you say the, the mission of that particular series is? Yeah. And when I reach out to people and I tell them, I'm like, hey, my audience, they're not elite runners. They're people who might, for them, a big deal might be a 5K. So I want this to be relatable to the average athlete. And so we, I, you know, the mission is to really just inspire people to, to do things they might, might not think is possible. And that may be their first five kilometer run. And so I do like talking about, you know, with these ultra runners and these elite, elite people, just like, you know, how do you over deal with injury or over or covering, overcoming self-doubt or bad weather or running in the snow or stuff that, you know, every human can relate to? Yeah, for sure. I, I think that's one of the wonderful things about running is everybody knows what it feels like to some extent. Even if it's a memory from 30 years ago in grade school, we all know what it's like to try to run a mile, you know. So, I mean, you're not primarily... Like running isn't your only thing. Are there like months of the year where you don't run maybe at all or a couple of weeks and then you get back into it and like you're not, it's not like you're, I don't picture you like being really obsessed with Strava or keeping a log book of <laughs> how much, like a training log of how much you've been running and what your times are and, and stuff like that. Never had a log book. I've never been on Strava for cycling or running. For me, running, I run for the joy of it. I do run a lot still. I probably always run three to four times a week throughout the year, 
you know, and I've always been, you know, somewhat good at running. I mean, I'm nowhere near elite, but I do like pushing myself and going fast. So I definitely, I run quite a bit and I'll do some speed work every now and then to before like a boulder boulder or a short race. But for me, running is just the experience and making friends and uh, traveling to places like the Havelina 100 or the Burning Man Ultra Marathon. And, uh, you know, running's always going to be a part of my life. It always has been a big part of my life for me. I can be home editing all day and just I need one hour outside and I'll put on my running shoes and hit the trails and just feel like everything is right in the world. So are you leaving your house going, I'm going to do X miles or I'm going to do X minutes or are you just kind of like, I'm just going to run for the joy of it? And Yeah, I don't have a watch, so I don't time anything. So <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know how far I run or how long I run. Yeah, it's, it's just the joy of it. I love going out and I live, you know, right along the foothills in Boulder. So I'm on the trails within minutes. And it's for me, it's just my, my nature time, my time to escape and breathe the fresh air. Okay. This is, this is interesting. Um, so I'm going to talk about the, the Havelina hundred, which is hundred mile ultra marathon that you've done how many times? I've done it the last three years, last three years. Okay. So you're not training, you're not specifically going out and training at all for that. Or how does that, like, you're not, you're just going, ah, maybe I'll go out and run a long ways. Or do you keep track at all in lead up to that? I'm chronically undertrained for pretty much any distance I run <laughs> for for races, which is not really something I should be bragging about. I, I run a lot, but when I go out to just run, I usually run five to seven miles. And before, like, the Havelina 100, I might up the mileage a little bit, maybe a few 10 milers in there. I'll try to call a friend and, you know, get them to run 15 to 20 miles with me. I think before this year's Havelina 100, I had a, a marathon on the books, the Boulder Backroads Marathon. So I'm like, okay, this marathon will help me for the Havelina 100. So, no, I really, I don't run as much as I should as far as training for a 100-mile race. So basically, you did the Boulder Backroads so you would have someone keeping track of distance and time for you. It's like a training run where you're like, hey, guys, I don't own a watch, but if I sign up for your race, I will know that I did a 26-mile run. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And I'm much better at racing than training. Like, yeah, exactly. Like, okay, this is a marathon. I know today I'm going to run 26.2 miles. That's awesome. Okay. <laughs> what, so what led you to the first time you did the Havelina 100? What, or how did you decide to, sit, to go, ah, I think I'll try this? So I did the Caballo Blanco Ultra, the first one in 2017, 50 miles. And the race went pretty well. And I loved it and had a great experience. And a lot of the people that were down there were like, you should do the Havelina 100. It's amazing. It's so much fun. You'll love it. It's a big party. And everybody knows that I like these, these party races. And I was like, oh, man, 100 miles, that sounds insane. Like 50 miles is one thing. You wake up in the morning and you're done by mid-afternoon. 100 miles is just, that's insane. That's like an entire day. No sleeping. That's weird. You guys are crazy. But uh, they got they got to me. And I signed up for the Havelina 100 and did my first one. And it was tough. I completely bonked at about mile 80. Walked about 10 miles. Picked it up and ran the last 10. But... Uh, Again, it was a really cool experience. I, I loved it and came back the next year and did much better. And you didn't, there's also a hundred K and you didn't yeah. say, maybe I'll try that first and then see if uh, the hundred mile would work out. No, I figured if I was going to do the Hobbley hundred, I was going to do the hundred miles. You oh, know? Okay. 
Yeah. And that's a, that's always a looped course. So you're doing five, five loops, right? If for the hundred. Yep. So the whole thing went really well until mile 80 or. Pretty much. I was feeling, I was feeling great, you know, and my body's used to endurance and sitting on a bicycle for 10 hours a day. So my body knows a bit of what the pain cave looks like. And I felt really good. And people are, I mean, the in 100 is, is so much fun. There's the aid stations. Everybody's dressed up in costumes. And there's so much good food at the in 100. I mean, that's really the reason why you should do it is they have grilled cheese and veggie burgers and all sorts of good stuff at those aid stations. So I was having the time of my life. And then by about, yeah, mile 80. And at this point, it's midnight. I started at 5 in the morning. The the wheels started falling off because I'm the biggest thing about 100-mile races, I've learned it. It's not really a running race. It's an eating race. Like, you have to be able to be good at getting calories into your body. And I got so sick of eating and all that sweet stuff and gels and all that garbage where I just couldn't put anything into my body anymore. And I got really nauseous. And uh, I bonked hard at mile 80 because of that. And how how are you pulling out of this then? What happened? (laughs) Luckily, I had a very nice man, Michael Miller, paced me for the last 20 miles and he just dragged my ass and he forced me to eat at every aid station and I slowly regained my energy and by mile 90 I I picked it up again and I have a whole YouTube video chronicling all of this which is actually pretty interesting yes I was gonna say that so uh yeah I picked it up and I finished in under 24 hours so I was pretty happy with that yeah I was going to say, yeah, if you do, if anybody wants to know what the Javelina 100 is like, your video is a good, a good place to start. Actually, I don't know. I've never run it, but I definitely watched your video when I was considering signing up for it a couple of years ago. So going into it, did you have some idea that this was going to be, did you think this might be really, really hard? This might be the hardest thing I've ever done. Or were you kind of just like, oh, we'll see what happens. Yeah, I knew it was going to be the hardest thing I'd ever done. You know, running a hundred miles. When I get up in the morning and I bike 100 miles, I'm like, oh, damn, this is going to be a long day on a bike. So if biking 100 miles is a long way, running 100 miles is just like almost unfathomable. And uh, I knew that I was undertrained. I was a little intimidated, but, uh, you know, just one foot in front of the other. And I kept moving forward. And uh, the power of these races and all the support from the people around you really goes a long way. Yeah. So what what have you done differently in the following years that has worked? Uh, what did I mean, what did you learn and how did you deal with that as you approached it the, the last few years that you did it? So I, I did train a bit more for the last two Javelina hundreds. Like I learned my lesson. I mean, you really have to your body has to know what it feels like to run for essentially 24 hours and to be on your feet for 24 hours and how to eat and, and, you know, put nutrition in your body for 24 hours. There's so many aspects of a hundred mile race that you need to stay on top of, or you know, you, your body might feel great, but if you're not fueling it, it's going to fall apart. Or if you're not paying attention to blisters or whatever else, it's going to come up and, and bite you in the butt, uh, you know, in 20 miles or so. So I think I was just better at uh, putting out little fires and it, at the beginning of the race so that it would help me glide to the finish at the end without having any major problems. And the biggest thing, I think, was just more time on my feet. And so the second Javelina 100, I, I trained a bit more, still not a ton, but I was hiking a ton. 
Again, I had ridden my bike across the country right before this race, which is not great training, but uh, my body was in shape, and uh, I just transferred that into to, to running. And that's kind of amazing. You can do that, and your feet aren't like totally rebelling, or <laughs> or you know something like that. That's that's good for you. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And then last year's Avalon Hundred was great. My mom was there. And my other two crewmates, Dana and Xantha, and I felt awesome the whole race. And I, I finished in just over 20 hours. So I was pretty psyched with that. Yeah, that's that's great. What what did your mom think of the, because that would have been, is that the first ultra marathon she'd ever been to? Yeah, it was. And my mom, again, was, you know, when I started doing ultras and 50-mile races and 100-mile races, she was a little weary of it. She's, you know, read some articles that it's really bad for your body or whatever. And so she wasn't like, oh, my God, Ryan, I'm so excited for you. This is going to be such a wonderful challenge, and I'm really proud of you. That's not really my mom's style. She just kind of stays quiet. And, you know, I you know I called her after the first one. I was like, I did it, I did it. She's like, Great, you know, she didn't want to give me like too much support so that I would go and do it again. <laughs> now you now you don't ever have to do it again, son. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now you know I was right. It's horrible for you. And uh, but it was fun for her to like see it up close and you know see that it's it's not a, a torture fest like she thought it would be. And you know she got to meet so many fun people out there. You know, all my friends from the Havelina world were out there, and you know she was having a good old time. Is she retired now? She is retired now, okay. so now she gets to have fun, which is great. She raised four kids on her own, so my mom deserves a little fun time. Yeah. Are your siblings at all into any of the same things, exercise-wise? Zero. Really? No, not really at all. Yeah, no. I have two younger brothers and an older sister. We all ran track when we were young, but we're talking like 100 meters to 400 meters. Mm-hmm. But uh I was the only one that really liked running to the level that I, I've loved it. And uh, it definitely, they have never done an ultra marathon. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Or they don't, own, they don't own a watch and they're not on Strava either. So <laughs> Exactly. That is so true. Yeah. So you, you're a fairly relentlessly positive person. Have you had moments in these longer races where you're kind of where you're not, you know, or are you able to, to keep it up the entire time to like 11 level 11 positivity? I, you know, running and cycling and being outside for me is my medicine. So I am already a pretty positive dude. Even if, if I'm just sitting in my house editing video, but if you take me outside and put a running shoes on or a bike underneath me, I'm going to be way more psyched. So even when I'm deep in the pain cave and everything hurts and I want to throw up. I'm still, I'm like, this is pretty cool. Like it's two in the morning and I'm lying on the desert floor outside of Scottsdale, Arizona, looking at the beautiful stars. And although this kind of sucks, it's also pretty cool. <laughs> huh? You know, cause how often do we humans get to do something like this? So I look at it as a, like a, it's a privilege that I get to put on running shoes and run around in a circle for 24 hours with a bunch of other fun-loving people. So, yeah, there are some moments that are difficult, but it's, it never gets to the point where, like, this is horrible, I want to go home, screw all this. Um, it's just kind of like, this is, a, this is a down moment, and I need to figure it out, and, and it'll, it'll get better. Everything will get better. This, too, shall pass. 
Yeah. Do you remember a dark moment? Because I, I have, yeah, I have do many of those where I'm like, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. I think I, I think I should quit. And you talk yourself out of it, but I'm still, I'm there. I'm still at the, you know, do you, do you have those at all? Do you have any one that you can remember? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that first Havelina hundred mile 80 through mile 90 was a death march. Absolutely. I felt nauseous. I couldn't eat anything. My, my pacer would try to put food in my mouth and it was just like the most disgusting thing in the world. I was like, my body was all out of, out of whack. I was like peeing every other step. And like, I was, I felt like I was drunk. I don't drink anymore, but I felt like I was drunk to that level of just like having no control over my mind and my body. Um, and so, yeah, that was a really dark point where I was like, oh, this is scary. Like I'm out here in the dark way out on these trails yeah there's people around me but like what if i can't go any further how am i going to get back to the start line i'm 10 miles from the start line now and so that was that was a dark moment that was it was scary but it was also beautiful in a way because i figured it out like i i rose from the dead at mile 90 and ran it in and it was like holy shit like i figured this out and here we go the human body is amazing and the brain, apparently. And the brain, yeah, absolutely. And a, a lot of, I think, the encouragement came from my, my pacer, Michael Miller, and the people around me, you know? And, and when other humans are cheering you on and just saying a few nice things to you, you're like, okay, I can do this one step in front of the other. I think I can, I think I can. Little engine that could. And you just slowly start revving your engine back up. And also, why do these people want me to finish? Why do they? Yeah, they don't know who I am. That's what I love. It's so beautiful. They just, everybody else has probably been in the same situation and they know what helped them. And so they share the love, essentially. Also, it's probably a lot of logistics to get you back to the starting line if you do quit. <laughs> yeah. So just, just keep going. You're fine. You're like, yeah, you're fine. And I remember, I remember seeing rattlesnakes out there. I, I heard coyotes off in the distance. So, it was almost like a magical mushroom trip without being on mushrooms. Like all this crazy sensory stuff was happening around me and I feel drunk and there's coyotes. It was like a vision quest. <laughs> you know, that's a great segue into my next, my next topic here is that a lot of people probably don't think of Burning Man as an ultra marathon destination, but there is an ultra at Burning Man that you, did you do the first one that they did or was that? No, I didn't do the first one, but I've done it six times now. And for me, the main reason why I go to Burning Man is for this ultra marathon. I mean, there's so much other fun stuff going on there, but the ultra is really what attracts me the most. And I found it by accident. I decided to go to Burning Man in 2016, and I knew that I wanted to run. I was like, wow, seven days with no running. I got to find a way to run. So I Googled like running groups at Burning Man. Huh. And I found I found a camp called Pink Lightning that puts on the ultra marathon. And I had never run anything further than a marathon. I was like, wow, I should I should try this. This sounds like a lot of fun. So, you know, doing it in Ryan's style came in with zero training and just uh, ran this 50K, which is 31 miles and had the time of my life. It starts at five in the morning. It's pitch black. You're running like right through dance floors and the music is loud and there's people chasing you and giving you whiskey and sprinkling you with uh, champagne and fairy dust and there's lasers everywhere. It's it's insane. <laughs> and it's a, it's just like a loop. What is the 
how long is the loop that you repeat? So if anybody's ever been to Burning Man, we run the perimeter of the playa, essentially. So it's seven-mile loops. So we do four seven-mile loops. That makes 28 miles. Then we do a little three-mile out and back to make it 31. And it it's beautiful. I, and I love the desert. Even if Burning Man wasn't happening, it would be a beautiful place for an ultra just because the sunrise out there is always incredible. And people are wearing costumes. And now a lot of people who go to Burning Man, they don't run the race, but they wake up and they cheer people on and they have little pop-up aid stations where they're serving veggie dogs or pancakes or waffles or whatever. And it's, uh, it's really fun. And uh, you're, not, you're not doing mushrooms before you do this. <laughs> I'm not, but there was, there was a girl this year that was on LSD and proudly told everybody that she was tripping while running. And she actually made a video about it. So I'm sure you could Google that and find it. Did she, did she do okay? Did she finish? Yeah, no, she's a pretty solid runner. I was like on lap number three and I was lapping her. And she's like, oh my God, wait, wait, stop, stop. Starts running after me. And I'm like, okay, what's up? She's like, hey, your videos got me to do this. And that's <laughs> when I'm on LSD. And I was like, whoa, I did not tell you to do LSD and run the marathon. Like yeah, I just wanted to bring my own my own spin to it, you know. Yeah, she certainly did. So, uh, I would say most people are not using drugs or alcohol. Maybe a little bit of whiskey here and there, but it's a pretty clean race. I know they haven't been doing any drug testing on the <laughs> the, the, the winners of the Burning Man Ultra Marathon, but it's pretty clean. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, how many people do you think are doing it? Like this, the most recent year that you did it. They had about 250 people this year, which is, oh, you know, wow. that's a that's a pretty legitimate ultra, even in the regular world that's outside of Burning Man. And it's a lot of the same people that do it every year. Again, you go once and you are hooked because Burning Man itself is fun. And then you add a little challenge in the middle of the week. And uh, it's a great time. And the camp that does it really does an amazing job. And they have, you know, all these quesadillas at the finish line and fun food and music and it's a, it's a good experience. What else is different about it? Is there like an entry fee? Like you're not, you're not going on ultrasignup.com to sign up for the Burning Man Ultra. I think, yeah, you actually, she does it. She does do it through ultra. Oh, really? If you go to my, if you go through my profile, you'll see all my times. That's fantastic. Um, but uh, yeah, so Burning Man, everything is free at Burning Man. So the idea of Burning Man is you bring a gift to the playa and that could be anything from, you have a bar and all the alcohol is free or you have a dance floor or you have a massage camp. In this case, this camp, Pink Lightning, their gift to the community is the ultra marathon. So there's no entry fee and you get a, a really cool t-shirt. It's usually hot pink. You get numbers. It's chip timed. We have, it's oh. very professional. There's aid stations. And another thing, everybody's supposed to bring their own food for the aid station. So maybe you bring a box of cliff bars or a gallon of water or something like that. So it's really a community event. Okay. So do they have the timing mats at the start yeah. finish, but then is there, are there other ones on like the other side of the playa or? No, there's only at the start finish, but it's, it's pretty legit. Yeah. And the people who have been winning this race the last couple of years are like really fast ultra runners. I think this, somebody did it in like 320. Whoa. Which is really fast. Cause it's not, 31 mile. it's not, well, I guess, I guess they're finished by 9am. So it's probably not even that hot by the time. They yeah. Finish. It's not that hot. Yeah. You start huh. at five in the morning and sometimes it's, it's downright cold at five in the morning. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. It's a crazy race. And again, I have lots of videos of this experience. If anybody wants to check it out. 
Yeah, on your YouTube channel. Um, yeah. And you uh, you and Dominic Gill also made a film about it, correct? Was that the... F- uh, well, it was his film. I was just in it. But yeah, he... Uh, and I think he was turned on to it by my experience doing it. And he's like, well, I want to tell the story. So they did a, a film for outside TV, and then it played in some other film festivals. That's where, that's where I saw it. Um, yeah. And yeah, it's... The other thing that I would say that, that I remember from the film that makes it different from ultramarathons is that there, I don't know if this happens every year, but there are people who do it completely naked. Yes. There are people that do it naked for sure. And uh, I've, I've considered doing that one of these years, and we'll see if that ever happens. But uh, there's definitely men and women that do it naked. There's people that wear big costumes that are probably... Way, I would much rather do it naked than wear some of the costumes these people are wearing, like, you know, medieval armor and stuff. <laughs> like, crazy, crazy oh, the, stuff. the chafing. Oh, the chafing, yeah. Uh, are people naked people wearing shoes or not? Yes, you pretty much have to wear shoes. I mean, you don't have to, but the the dust in the at the playa is really, I guess the pH, the alkalinity or something, really dries up feet, and it, it would just... It's just bad news. So nobody really goes barefoot for anything at Burning Man. Huh. But kicking up the dust doesn't dry out your other areas <laughs> if you're naked. Well, maybe it does. We just don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. You should find one of the naked guys. <laughs> but from what I've, what I've heard is that it's it's no big deal. People seem to be pretty psyched about it. And uh, Yeah. I wonder if there's another one in... In the, in the world where that happens. Well, the thing is, you know, I've thought about doing it naked, but I'm like, wow, I don't want to just run this race for the first time naked. What if things go wrong seven miles in? But you can't train naked. Like, where am I going to run in Boulder naked without getting arrested? So hey, where are you? Where are you going to run in America naked? Yeah, it's a tricky thing to train for. <laughs> yeah, well, I wonder if the people who are running actually train naked. I don't know. That's a good question. You could always put clothes at the start finish and be like, you know, that one lap was fine. I think. Yeah. I think I better. And some people have done that. Well, I think the guy who won the race last year, he runs it really fast in like normal, boring running clothes. And then for the last three miles, he strips down naked. Oh, okay. Oh, that's that's the way to do it. All right. He wants those finish line photos of his ding dong, you know, <laughs> flapping around. Yeah, everybody does. So you're like, that's so everybody that's, does. That's good for that's good for everyone. <laughs> oh man. Um, if people want to find you on YouTube, it's just Ryan Van Duzer, V A N space D U Z E R. Um, if people Google that for YouTube, and that's like kind of your your most widespread medium, I would say. Yeah. I love YouTube. I mean, I love telling stories. You know, I'm on Instagram and everything else, but my my main mode of storytelling all my life has been through video. So YouTube is where all of that is at. And yeah, you can find all sorts of funny stories about running and biking and challenges and hiking the Himalayas to, to anything else. Yeah, bike part reviews, how-tos. Do you, are you looking for guests for running with Ryan? If- yes, I am. That's a great that's a great shout out. I'm always looking for guests. Pretty much you have to be in the Denver Boulder area because I don't have a budget to fly out and run with somebody. That is one of the limitations. You know, we could, you can do a podcast wherever, but if you actually want to go running with somebody, you need to be with them. So, yeah, unless you FaceTime together, <laughs> which wouldn't be as good. But people people can fly to you. 
Correct. Yes, of course. Yes, people can fly to me. Yeah. Okay. So or they can ride their bikes. Let's keep this. Yes, uh, let's exactly. keep this green. Green man. Yeah, for that carbon carbon footprint. What are you? Your next thing would be probably the Boulder Boulder. Yeah, my next race on the calendar is the Boulder Boulder 10K. There's 50,000 people that run that race, so it's it's a lot of fun. And that was a great one because it's over so fast. <laughs> it's not <laughs> yeah. like an ultra marathon where you're you're in it for uh, nine plus hours. And then in this summer, I'm going to do some bike adventures in Europe, and I'm always just looking for the next great thing. Yeah, and then you're looking for the next great thing to find and then do and then do it again. And then on the third or fourth year, invite your mom to come hang out and <laughs> do it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I got to go suss it out before, make sure my mom would enjoy it. Got to make sure there's like a, a comfy hotel and a place that has wine. And then, you know, we're all good. Except Burning Man, which is, has none of those things. Yeah, that's true. Burning Man was, uh, my mom was a good sport at Burning Man. Well, awesome, man. Thanks again for doing this. This was super fun. Yeah, thank you. I loved it. Awesome. Thanks, Ryan. That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Brendan and Ryan for the conversation. And again, you can go to YouTube and check out Ryan's channel under his name, Ryan Van Duzer. I also want to thank Luke Alley for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd encourage you to subscribe to Off the Couch. Tell your friends about the show. And especially if you've been listening to a number of these episodes now, we would love it if you would leave us a nice little rating in iTunes. Until next time, keep moving forward, and we will talk to you again next week.